Section 5 of Rewards and Fairies. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Peter Eastman. Rewards and Fairies by Rudyard Kipling. Section 5 Mark Lake Witches. The Way Through the Woods. They shut the road through the woods seventy years ago. Weather and rain have undone it again, and now you would never know. There was once a road through the woods before they planted the trees. It is underneath the coppice and heath and the thin anemones. Only the keeper sees that where the ring-dove broods and the badgers roll at ease. There was once a road through the woods. Yet if you enter the woods of a summer evening late, when the night air cools on the trout-ringed pools where the otter whistles his mate, they fear not men in the woods because they see so few. You will hear the beat of a horse's feet and the swish of a skirt in the dew, steadily cantering through the misty solitudes, as though they perfectly knew the old lost road through the woods. But there is no road through the woods. Mark Lake Witches When Dan took up boat-building, Una coaxed Mrs. Vincy, the farmer's wife at Little Linden's, to teach her to milk. Mrs. Vincy milks in the pasture in summer, which is different from milking in the shed, because the cows are not tied up, and until they know you they will not stand still. After three weeks Una could milk red cow or kitty shorthorn quite dry, without her wrists aching, and then she allowed Dan to look. But milking did not amuse him, and it was pleasanter for Una to be alone in the quiet pastures with quiet-spoken Mrs. Vincy. So evening after evening she slipped across to Little Linden's, took her stool from the fern clump beside the fallen oak, and went to work, her pail between her knees, and her head pressed hard into the cow's flank. As often as not, Mrs. Vincy would be milking cross pansy at the other end of the pasture, and would not come near till it was time to strain and pour off. Once, in the middle of a milking, Kitty Shorthorn boxed Una's ear with her tail. "'You old pig!' said Una, nearly crying, for a cow's tail can hurt. "'Why didn't you tie it down, child?' said a voice behind her. "'I meant to, but the flies are so bad I let her off, and this is what she's done!' Una looked round, expecting Puck, and saw a curly-haired girl, not much taller than herself, but older, dressed in a curious high-waisted, lavender-colored riding habit, with a high-hunched collar, and a deep cape, and a belt fastened with a steel clasp. She wore a yellow velvet cap and tan gauntlets, and carried a real hunting crop. Her cheeks were pale except for two pretty pink patches in the middle, and she talked with little gasps at the end of her sentences, as though she had been running. "'You don't look so badly, child,' she said, and when she smiled, 
her teeth showed small and even and pearly. "'Can you milk?' Una asked, and then flushed, for she heard Puck's chuckle. He stepped out of the fern and sat down, holding Kitty Shorthorn's tail. "'There isn't much,' he said, "'that Miss Philadelphia doesn't know about milk, or for that matter butter and eggs. She's a great housewife.' "'Oh,' said Una, "'I'm sorry I can't shake hands. Mine are all milky. But Mrs. Vincy is going to teach me butter-making this summer.' "'Ah, I'm going to London this summer,' the girl said, "'to my aunt in Bloomsbury.' She coughed as she began to hum. "'Oh, what a town! What a wonderful metropolis!' "'You've got a cold,' said Una. "'No, only my stupid cough. But it's vastly better than it was last winter. It will disappear in London air. Everyone says so. Do you like doctors, child?' "'I don't know any,' Una replied. "'But I'm sure I shouldn't.' "'Think yourself lucky, child. I beg your pardon?' The girl laughed, for Una frowned. "'I'm not a child, and my name's Una,' she said. "'Mine's Philadelphia, but everybody except Renee calls me Phil. I'm Squire Buckstead's daughter, over at Mark Lake yonder.' She jerked her little round chin towards the south behind Dollington. "'Surely you know Mark Lake.' "'We went a picnic to Mark Lake Green once,' said Una. "'It's awfully pretty.' I like all those funny little roads that don't lead anywhere. They lead over our land, said Philadelphia stiffly, and the coach road is only four miles away. One can go anywhere from the green. I went to the Assize Ball at Lewes last year. She spun round and took a few dancing steps, but stopped with her hand to her side. It gives me a stitch, she explained. No odds, twill go away in London air. That's the latest French stepchild. Renée taught it me. Do you hate the French child, Una? Well, I hate French, of course, but I don't mind Mademoiselle. She's rather decent. Is Renée your French governess? Philadelphia laughed till she caught her breath again. Oh, no. Renée's a French prisoner, on parole. That means he's promised not to escape till he has been properly exchanged for an Englishman. He's only a doctor, so I hope they won't think him worth exchanging. My uncle captured him last year in the Ferdinand Privateer off Belle Isle, and he cured my uncle of a raging toothache. Of course, after that we couldn't let him lie among the common French prisoners at Rye, and so he stays with us. He's a very old family. A Breton, which is nearly next door to being a true Briton, my father says. And he wears his hair clubbed, not powdered. Much more becoming, don't you think? I don't know what your... Una began. But Puck, the other side of the pail, winked. And she went on with her milking. He's going to be a great French physician when the war is over. He makes me bobbins for my lace pillow now. He's very clever with his hands but he'd doctor our people on the green if they would let him. Only our doctor, Dr. Brake, says he's an imp or imp something, worse than imposter. But my nurse says... Nurse? You're ever so old. What have you got a nurse for? Una finished milking and turned round on her stool as Kitty Shorthorn grazed off. 
because I can't get rid of her. Old Sissy nursed my mother, and she says she'll nurse me till she dies. The idea! She never lets me alone. She thinks I'm delicate. She has grown infirm in her understanding, you know. Mad, quite mad, poor Sissy. Really mad? said Una, or just silly? Crazy, I should say, from the thing she does. Her devotion to me is terribly embarrassing. You know, I have all the keys of the hall, except the brewery and the tenant's kitchen. I give out all stores and the linen and plate. How jolly! I love storerooms and giving things out. Ah, uh, it's a great responsibility you'll find when you come to my age. Last year, Dad said I was fatiguing myself with my duties, and he actually wanted me to give up the keys to old Amour, our housekeeper. I wouldn't. I hate her. I said, no, sir, I am mistress of Marclay Hall just as long as I live, because I'm never going to be married, and I shall give out stores and linen till I die. And what did your father say? Oh, I threatened to pin a dishclout to his coat-tail. He ran away. Everyone's afraid of that except me. Philadelphia stamped her foot. The idea! If I can't make my own father happy in his own house, I'd like to meet the woman that can, and, and, I'd have the living hide off her. She cut with her long thonged whip. It cracked like a pistol shot across the still pasture. Kitty Shorthorn threw up her head and trotted away. I beg your pardon, Philadelphia said, but it makes me furious. Don't you hate those ridiculous old quizzes with their feathers and fronts who come to dinner and call you child in your own chair at your own table? I don't always come to dinner, said Una, but I hate being called child. Please tell me about storerooms and giving out things. Ah, it's a great responsibility, particularly with that old cat Amour looking at the lists over your shoulder. And such a shocking thing happened last summer. Poor crazy sissy, my nurse that I was telling you of, she took three solid silver tablespoons. Took? But isn't that stealing? Una cried. Shh! said Philadelphia, looking round at Puck. All I say is she took them without my leave. I made it right afterwards. So, as Dad says, and he's a magistrate, it wasn't a legal offense. It was only compounding a felony. It sounds awful, said Una. It was. My dear, I was furious. I had had the keys for ten months, and I'd never lost anything before. I said nothing at first, because a big house offers so many chances of things being mislaid and coming to hand later. Fetching up in the lease scuppers, my uncle calls it. But next week I spoke to old Sissy about it when she was doing my hair at night, and she said I wasn't to worry my heart for trifles. Isn't it like em? Una burst out. They see you're worried over something that really matters, and they say, don't worry, as if that did any good. I quite agree with you, my dear, quite agree with you. I told Sis the spoons were solid silver and worth forty shillings, so if the thief were found, he'd be tried for his life. Hanged, do you mean? Una said. They ought to be. But Dad says no jury will hang a man nowadays for a forty-shilling theft. 
they transport em into penal servitude at the uttermost ends of the earth beyond the seas for the term of their natural life i told sissy that and i saw her tremble in my mirror then she cried and caught hold of my knees and i couldn't for my life understand what it was all about she cried so can you guess my dear what that poor crazy thing had done it was midnight before i pieced it together she had given the spoons to jerry gam the witch-master on the green so that he might put a charm on me me put a charm on you why that's what i asked and then i saw how mad poor sissy was you know this stupid little cough of mine it will disappear as soon as i go to london she was troubled about that and about my being so thin and she told me jerry had promised her if she would bring him three silver spoons that he'd charm my cough away and make me plump flesh up she said i couldn't help laughing but it was a terrible night i had to put sissy into my own bed and stroke her hand till she cried herself to sleep what else could i have done when she woke and i coughed i suppose i can cough in my own room if i please she said that she'd killed me and asked me to have her hanged at Luz sooner than send her to the uttermost ends of the earth away from me how awful what did you do phil do i rode off at five in the morning to talk to master jerry with a new lash on my whip oh i was furious which master or no which master i meant to ah uh, what's a witch master a master of witches of course i don't believe there are witches but people say every village has a few and jerry was the master of all ours at marklake he has been a smuggler and a man-of-war's man and now he pretends to be a carpenter and joiner he can make almost anything but he really is a white wizard he cures people by herbs and charms he can cure them after dr brake has given them up and that's why dr brake hates him so he used to make me toy carts and charm off my warts when i was a child philadelphia spread out her hands with the delicate shiny little nails it isn't counted lucky to cross him he has his ways of getting even with you they say but i wasn't afraid of jerry i saw him working in his garden and i leaned out of my saddle and double thonged him between the shoulders over the hedge well my dear for the first time since dad gave him to me my troubadour i wish you could see the sweet creature shied across the road and i spilled out into the hedge-top most undignified jerry pulled me through to his side and brushed the leaves off me i was horribly pricked but i didn't care now jerry i said i'm going to take the hide off you first and send you to lose afterwards you well know why oh he said and he sat down among his beehives then i reckon you've come about old sissy's business my dear i reckon i just about have i said stand away from these hives i can't get at you there that's why i be where i be he said if you'll excuse me miss phil i don't hold with being flogged before breakfast at my time o life he's a huge big man but he looked so comical squatting among the hives that 
I know I oughtn't to. I laughed, and he laughed. I always laugh at the wrong time. But I soon recovered my dignity, and I said, Then give me back what you made poor Sissy steal. Your poor Sissy, he said, she's a hat full of trouble. But you shall have a Miss Phil. They're already put by for you. And would you believe it? The old sinner pulled my three silver spoons out of his dirty pocket and polished them on his cuff. Here they be, he says, and he gave them to me, just as cool as though I'd come to have my warts charmed. That's the worst of people having known you when you were young. But I preserved my composure. Jerry, I said, what in the world are we to do? If you'd been caught with these things on you, you'd have been hanged. I know it, he said, but they're yours now. But you made my sissy steal them, I said. That I didn't, he said. Your sissy, she was picking at me and terrifying me all the long day and every day for weeks to put a charm on you, Miss Phil, and take away your little spitty cough. Yes, I knew that, Jerry, and to make me flesh up, I said. I'm much obliged to you, but I'm not one of your pigs. Ah, I reckon she've been talking to you then, he said. Yes, she give me no peace, and being terrified, for I don't hold with old women, I laid a task on her which I thought'd silence her. I never reckoned the old scraddle and risk her neckbone at lose sizes for your sake, Miss Phil. But she did. She up and stole, I tell you, as cheerful as a tinker. You might have knocked me down with any one of them little spoons when she brung em in her apron. Do you mean to say, then, that you did it to try, my poor sissy? I screamed at him. What else for, dearie? he said. I don't stand in need of hedge stealings. I'm a freeholder with money in the bank. And now I won't trust women no more. Silly old Bassam, I do be left she'd have stole the squire's big fob watch if I'd required her. Then you're a wicked, wicked old man, I said, and I was so angry that I couldn't help crying, and of course that made me cough. Jerry was in a fearful taking. He picked me up and carried me into his cottage. It's full of foreign curiosities, and he got me something to eat and drink, and he said he'd be hanged by the neck any day if it pleased me. He said he'd even tell old Sissy he was sorry. That's a great come-down for a witch-master, you know. I was ashamed of myself for being so silly, and I dabbed my eyes and said, The least you can do now is to give poor Sis some sort of a charm for me. Yes, that's only fair dealings, he said. You know the names of the twelve apostles, dearie. You say them names, one by one, before your open window, rain or storm, wet or shine, five times a day fasting. But, mind you, twixt every name, you draw in your breath through your nose, right down to your pretty little toes, as long and as deep as you can, and let it out slow through your pretty little mouth. There's virtue for your cough, and those names spoke that way. And I'll give you something you can see, moreover. Here's a stick of maple, which is the warmest tree in the wood. That's true, Una interrupted. You can feel it almost as warm as yourself when you touch it. It's cut one inch long for your every year, Jerry said. That's sixteen inches. 
you set it in your window so that it holds up the sash and thus you keep it rain or shine or wet or fine day and night i've said words over it which will have virtue on your complaints i haven't any complaints jerry i said it's only to please sissy i know that as well as you do dearie he said and and that was all that came of my going to give him a flogging i wonder whether he made poor troubadour shy when i lashed at him jerry has his ways of getting even with people i wonder said una well did you try the charm did it work what nonsense i told renee about it of course because he's a doctor he's going to be a most famous doctor that's why our doctor hates him renee said oh your master gam he is worth knowing and he put up his eyebrows like this he made joke of it all he can see my window from the carpenter shed where he works and if ever the maple stick fell down he pretended to be in a fearful taking till i propped the window up again he used to ask me whether i had said my apostles properly and how i took my deep breaths oh yes and the next day though he had been there ever so many times before he put on his new hat and paid jerry gam a visit of state as a fellow physician jerry never guessed renee was making fun of him and so he told renee about the sick people in the village and how he cured them with herbs after dr brake had given them up jerry could talk smugglers french of course and i had taught renee plenty of english if only he wasn't so shy they called each other monsieur gam and monsieur lenarc just like gentlemen i suppose it amused poor renee he hasn't much to do except to fiddle about in the carpenter shop he's like all the french prisoners always making knick-knacks and jerry had a little lathe at his cottage and so and so renee took to being with jerry much more than i approved of the hall is so big and empty when dad's away and i will not sit with old amour she talks so horridly about every one especially about renee i was rude to renee i'm afraid but i was properly served out for it one always is you see dad went down to hastings to pay his respects to the general who commanded the brigade there and to bring him to the hall afterwards dad told me he was a very brave soldier from india he was colonel of dad's regiment the thirty-third foot after dad left the army and then he changed his name from wesley to wellesley or else the other way about and dad said i was to get out all the silver for him and i knew that meant a big dinner so i went down to the sea for early mackerel and had such a morning in the kitchen and the storerooms old amour nearly cried however my dear i made all my preparations in ample time but the fish didn't arrive it never does and i wanted rene to ride to pevensey and bring it himself he had gone over to jerry of course as he always used unless i requested his presence beforehand i can't send for rene every time i want him he should be there now don't you ever do what i did child because it's in the highest degree unladylike but but one of our woods runs up to jerry's garden and if you climb it's ungenteel but i can climb like a kitten there's an old hollow oak just above the pigsty where you can hear and see everything below truthfully i only went to tell renee about the mackerel 
but i saw him and jerry sitting on the seat playing with wooden toy trumpets so i slipped into the hollow and choked down my cough and listened renee had never shown me any of these trumpets trumpets aren't you too old for trumpets said una they weren't real trumpets because jerry opened his shirt collar and renee put one end of his trumpet against jerry's chest and put his ear to the other then jerry put his trumpet against renee's chest and listened while renee breathed and coughed i was afraid i would cough too this hollywood one is the best said jerry tis wonderful like hearing a man's soul whispering in his innards but unless i've a buzzin in my ears monsieur lenark you make much about the same kind of noises as old gaffer macklin but not quite so loud as young copper it sounds like breakers on a reef a long way off Comprenny? Perfectly, said Renee. I drive on the breakers. But before I strike, I shall save hundreds, thousands, millions perhaps, by my little trumpets. Now tell me what sounds the old gaffer Macklin have made in his chest, and what the young copper also. Jerry talked for nearly a quarter of an hour about sick people in the village, while Renee asked questions. Then he sighed and said, you explain very well, Monsieur Gam, but if only I had your opportunities to listen for myself, do you think these poor people would let me listen to them through my trumpet? For a little money? No? Renée's as poor as a church mouse. They'd kill you, monsieur. It's all I can do to coax them to abide it, and I'm Jerry Gam, said Jerry. He's very proud of his attainments. Then these poor people are alarmed, no? said Renee. They've added in at me for some time back because of my trying your trumpets on their sick, and I reckon by the talk at the alehouse they won't stand much more. Tom Dunch and some of his kidney was drinking themselves riot ripe when I passed long afternoon. Charms and mutterings and bits of red wool and black hens is in the way in nature to these fools, monsieur but anything likely to do em real service is devil's work by their estimation. If I was you, I'd go home before they come. Jerry spoke quite quietly, and René shrugged his shoulders. I am prisoner on parole, Monsieur Gam, he said. I have no home. Now that was unkind of René. He's often told me that he looked on England as his home. I suppose it's French politeness. Then we'll talk of something that matters, said Jerry. Not to name no names, Monsieur Lenark, but what might be your own opinion, uh, someone who ain't old Gaffer Macklin nor young Copper? Is that person better or worse? Better, for time, that is, said René. He meant for the time being, but I never could teach him some phrases. I thought so too, said Jerry, but how about time to come renee shook his head and then he blew his nose you don't know how odd a man looks blowing his nose when you are sitting directly above him i've thought that too said jerry he rumbled so deep i could scarcely catch it don't make much odds to me because i'm old but you're young monsieur you're young and he put his hand on renee's knee and Renée covered it with his hand. I didn't know they were such friends. Thank you, mon ami, 
said Rene. I am much obliged. Let us return to our trumpet-making. Uh, but I forget. He stood up. It appears that you received this afternoon. You can't see into Gam's Lane from the oak, but the gate opened, and fat little Dr. Brake stumped in, mopping his head, and half a dozen of our people following him, very drunk. You ought to have seen Rene bow. He does it beautifully. A word with you, Lenek, said Dr. Brake. Jerry has been practicing some devilry or other on these poor wretches, and they've asked me to be arbiter. Whatever that means, I reckon it's safer than asking you to be doctor, said Jerry, and Tom Dunch, one of our carters, laughed. That ain't right feeling of you, Tom, Jerry said, seeing how clever Dr. Brake put away your thorn in the flesh last winter. Tom's wife had died at Christmas, though Dr. Brake bled her twice a week. Dr. Brake danced with rage. This is all beside the mark, he said. These good people are willing to testify that you've been impudently prying into God's secrets by means of some papistical contrivance which this person, he pointed to poor Rene, has furnished you with. Why, here are the things themselves. Rene was holding a trumpet in his hand. Then all the men talked at once. They said old Gaffer Macklin was dying from stitches in his side where Jerry had put the trumpet. They called it the Devil's Earpiece, and they said it left round red witch marks on people's skins and dried up their lights and made them spit blood and threw them into sweats. Terrible things, they said. You never heard such a noise. I took advantage of it to cough. Renee and Jerry were standing with their backs to the pigsty. Jerry fumbled in his big flat pockets and fished up a pair of pistols. You ought to have seen the men give back when he cocked his. He passed one to Rene. Wait, wait, said Rene. I will explain to the doctor, if he permits. He waved a trumpet at him, and the men at the gate shouted, Don't touch it, doctor. Don't lay a hand to the thing. Come, come, said Rene. You are not so big fool as you pretend. No? Dr. Brake backed toward the gate, watching Jerry's pistol, and Rene followed him with his trumpet, like a nurse trying to amuse a child, and put the ridiculous thing to his ear to show how it was used, and talked of la guar, and l'humanité, and la science, while Dr. Brake watched Jerry's pistol and swore. I nearly laughed aloud. Now listen, now listen, said Rene. This will be monies in your pockets, my dear confrère. You will become rich. Then Dr. Brake said something about adventurers who could not earn an honest living in their own country, creeping into decent houses and taking advantage of gentlemen's confidence to enrich themselves by base intrigues. René dropped his absurd trumpet and made one of his best bows. I knew he was angry from the way he rolled his R's. Very good said he. For that, I shall have much pleasure to kill you now and here. Monsieur Gam, another bow to Jerry, you will please lend him your pistol, or he shall have mine. I give you my word, I know not which is best. And if he will choose a second from his friends over there, another bow to our drunken yokels at the gate, we will commence. That's fair enough, said Jerry. Tom Dunch, you owe it to the doctor to be his second. Please, your man. No, said Tom. No mixin' in gentry's quarrels for me. And he shook his head and went out.
and the others followed him. "'Hold on,' said Jerry. "'You forgot what you set out to do up at the alehouse just now. "'You was going to search me for witch marks. "'You was going to duck me in the pond. "'You was going to drag all my bits of sticks out of my little cottage here. "'What's the matter with you? "'Wouldn't you like to be with your old woman tonight, Tom?' They didn't even look back, much less come. They ran to the village alehouse like hares. No matter for these can I, said René, buttoning up his coat so as not to show any linen. All gentlemen do that before a duel, Dad says, and he's been out five times. You shall be his second, Monsieur Gam. Give him the pistol. Dr. Brake took it as if it was red hot, but he said that if René resigned his pretensions in certain quarters, he would pass over the matter. René bowed deeper than ever. "'As for that,' he said, "'if you were not the ignorant which you are, you would have known long ago that the subject of your remarks is not for any living man.' "'I don't know what the subject of his remarks might have been, but he spoke in a simply dreadful voice, my dear,' and Dr. Brake turned quite white and said René was a liar. And then René caught him by the throat and choked him black. Well, my dear, as if this wasn't deliciously exciting enough, just exactly at that minute I heard a strange voice on the other side of the hedge say, What's this? What's this, Buxteed? And there was my father and Sir Arthur Wesley on horseback in the lane. And there was René kneeling on Dr. Brake, and there was I up in the oak, listening with all my ears. I must have leaned forward too much, and the voice gave me such a start that I slipped. I had only time to make one jump onto the pigsty roof, another before the tiles broke onto the pigsty wall, and then I bounced down into the garden just behind Jerry, with my hair full of bark. Imagine the situation! Oh, I can! Una laughed till she nearly fell off the stool. Dad said, Philadelphia! And Sir Arthur Wesley said, Good Gad! And Jerry put his foot on the pistol René had dropped. But René was splendid. He never even looked at me. He began to untwist Dr. Brake's neckcloth as fast as he'd twisted it, and asked him if he felt better. What's happened? What's happened? said Dad. A fit, said René. I fear my confrère has had a fit. Do not be alarmed. He recovers himself. Shall I plead you a little, my dear doctor? Dr. Brake was very good, too. He said, I am vastly obliged, Monsieur Lenec, but I am restored now. And as he went out of the gate, he told Dad it was a syncope, I think. Then Sir Arthur said, Quite right, Buxteed. Not another word. They are both gentlemen and he took off his cocked hat to Dr. Brake and René. But poor Dad wouldn't let well alone. He kept saying, Philadelphia, what does all this mean? Well, sir, I said, I've only just come down. As far as I could see, it looked as though Dr. Brake had had a sudden seizure. That was quite true. If you'd seen René seize him... Sir Arthur laughed. Not much change there, Buxteed, he said. She's a lady, a thorough lady. Heaven knows she doesn't look like one, said poor Dad. Go home, Philadelphia. So I went home, my dear. Don't laugh so. 
right under sir arthur's nose a most enormous nose feeling as though i were twelve years old going to be whipped oh i beg your pardon child it's all right said una i'm getting on for thirteen i've never been whipped but i know how you felt all the same it must have been funny funny if you'd heard sir arthur jerking out good gad buckstead every minute as they rode behind me and poor dad sang pon my honour arthur i can't account for it oh how my cheeks tingled when i reached my room but sissy had laid out my very best evening dress the white satin one vandyked at the bottom with spots of maroon foil and the pearl knots you know catching up the drapery from the left shoulder i had poor mother's lace tucker and her coronet comb oh you lucky una murmured and gloves french kid my dear philadelphia patted her shoulder and maroon satin shoes and a maroon and gold crepe fan that restored my calm nice things always do i wore my hair banded on my forehead with a little curl over the left ear and when i descended the stairs en grande tenue all the more curtsied to me without my having to stop and look at her which alas is too often the case sir arthur highly approved of the dinner my dear the mackerel did come in time we had all the marklake silver out and he toasted my health and he asked me where my little bird's nesting sister was i know he did it to quiz me so i looked him straight in the face my dear and i said i always send her to the nursery sir arthur when i receive guests at Marclay hall oh how cheap clever of you what did he say una cried he said not much change there buckstead gad i deserved it and he toasted me again they talked about the french and what a shame it was that sir arthur only commanded a brigade at hastings and he told dad of a battle in india at a place called assai dad said it was a terrible fight but sir arthur described it as though it had been a whist party i suppose because a lady was present of course you were the lady i wish i'd seen you said una i wish you had child i had such a triumph after dinner renee and dr brake came in they had quite made up their quarrel and they told me they had the highest esteem for each other and i laughed and said i heard every word of it up in the tree you never saw two men so frightened in your life and when i said what was the subject of your remarks renee neither of them knew where to look oh i quizzed them unmercifully they'd seen me jump off the pigsty roof remember but what was the subject of their remarks said una oh dr brake said it was a professional matter so the laugh was turned on me i was horribly afraid it might have been something unladylike and indelicate but that wasn't my triumph dad asked me to play on the harp between just you and me child i had been practicing a new song from london i don't always live in trees for weeks and i gave it them for a surprise what was it said una sing it i have given my heart to a flower not very difficult fingering but a ravishing sentiment philadelphia coughed and cleared her throat i've a deep voice for my age and size she explained 
contralto, you know, but it ought to be stronger. And she began, her face all dark against the last of the soft pink sunset. I have given my heart to a flower, though I know it is fading away, though I know it will live but an hour, and leave me to mourn its decay. Isn't that touchingly sweet? Then the last verse, I wish I had my harp, dear, goes as low as my register will reach. She drew in her chin and took a deep breath. Ye desolate whirlwinds that rave, I charge you be good to my dear. She is all, she is all that I have, and the time of our parting is near. Beautiful, said Una, and did they like it? Like it? They were overwhelmed. A couplet, as René says. My dear, if I hadn't seen it, I shouldn't have believed that I could have drawn tears, genuine tears, to the eyes of four grown men. But I did. René simply couldn't endure it. He's all French sensibility. He hid his face and said, Assez, mademoiselle, c'est plus fort que moi, assez. And Sir Arthur blew his nose and said, Good Ged, this is worse than a sigh. Well, Dad sat with the tears simply running down his cheeks. And what did Dr. Brake do? He got up and pretended to look out of the window. But I saw his little fat shoulders jerk as if he had the hiccups. That was a triumph. I never suspected him of sensibility. Oh, I wish I'd seen, I wish I'd been you said Una, clasping her hands. Puck rustled and rose from the fern, just as a big blundering cockchafer flew smack against Una's cheek. When she had finished rubbing the place, Mrs. Vincey called to her that Pansy had been fractious, or she would have come long before to help her strain and pour off. It didn't matter, said Una. I just waited. Is that old Pansy barging about the lower pasture now? No, said Mrs. Vincey, listening. It sounds more like a horse being galloped middlin' quick through the woods. But there's no road there. I reckon it's one of Gleason's cold sluice. Shall I see you up to the house, Miss Una? Gracious, no, thank you. What's going to hurt me? said Una. And she put her stool away behind the oak and strolled home through the gaps that old Hobden kept open for her. Brooklyn Road I was very well pleased with what I knowed. I reckoned myself no fool. Till I met with a maid on the Brooklyn Road that turned me back to school. Low down, low down, where the little green lanterns shine. Oh, maids, I've done with thee all but one, and she can never be mine. Twas right in the middest of a hot June night with thunder dunton round, and I seed her face by the fairy light that beats from off the ground. She only smiled, and she never spoke. She smiled and went away. But when she'd gone, my heart was broke, and my wits was clean astray. Oh, stop your ringing and let me be. Let be, O oh Brooklyn bells. You'll ring old Goodman out of the sea before I wed one else. Old Goodman's farm is rank sea-sand, 
and was this thousand year, but it shall turn to rich plough-land before I change my dear. Oh, Fairfield Church is water-bound from autumn to the spring, but it shall turn to high hill-ground before my bells do ring. Oh, leave me walk on the Brookland Road in the thunder and warm rain. Oh, leave me look where my love goed, and perhaps I'll see her again. Low down, low down, where the little green lanterns shine. Oh, maids, I've done with thee all but one, and she can never be mine. End of section 5